Usually, that's how that works. We're going to be in Isaiah 62 and uh, the very first part of Isaiah 63 tonight. So if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to open up to that. And we're going to talk about characteristics of Zion. And if you remember, we talked about Zion a few times as we've gone through Isaiah. And, and when we talk about eschatology, okay, eschatology is a study of end things. We talk about eschatology, the Bible, the reason why there's a lot of discussion and sometimes confusion is because the Bible will use same terms for different things. Like you'll talk about Zion and we're talking about Jerusalem post-exile. And he'll talk about Zion and he's talking about the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth. And, and as we, so we have to kind of wrap our minds around what's going on. Is he talking about the kingdom of God that we, that we see the Lord establishing after his return? Is he talking about new Jerusalem, meaning the, 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 uh, new heaven and new earth? And so as we, as we bring all of these concepts together, we, we have to give ourselves a little bit of space for trying to unravel all of that. You know, a lot of times when people talk about prophecy, they talk about it like somebody looking at mountaintops. And when you look at mountaintops, they look like they're right next to each other, but you can't recognize or you don't see the valley between the mountain ranges. Sometimes they're not right there. And so same thing as we go through prophecy. Now, as we look at Isaiah 62, in my opinion, Isaiah 62 and the things we're going to be looking at here are all dealing with the new Jerusalem. We have uh, the, the Zion spoken of being the, the place wherein the redeemed are going to gather. The promise that one day um, you don't have to worry about, about locking your doors. Isaiah is going to use um, illustrations like that to just try to emphasize the idea that there'll be a day when you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry about the wicked or, or enemies coming and stealing your stuff or, or whatever things. And those are going to be some of the, some of the parallels that Isaiah uses. Now, the, the trick is that we... We have to understand or recognize what, what are we looking at when Isaiah is talking about. Because as we wrap up 62, as we work our way through 62, <clears throat> he's going to be looking toward the day of vengeance. You remember when Jesus came, he read Isaiah 61. He said, I have come to proclaim the year of, of the Lord's grace. Right? He's come to the Lord's favor. I'm going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops reading in Isaiah 61, first three verses. What he doesn't read is, and the day of vengeance of the Lord. And so when we talk about the day of vengeance, you need to understand that there will there is a judgment day. The Bible te- talks about a judgment day. There will be a judgment day. But the <clears throat> judgment day is spoken of as a day. And the time of the Lord's favor is spoken of as a year. The point being God's judgment is smaller, shorter, less than the period of time wherein God is uh, extending his grace. And so that's what we've seen in reality. So we look at Isaiah 62, the characteristics of Zion. Here's what he begins in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. And the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. So the Lord begins by saying, look, 
This is something I'm going to accomplish. So the glorification of Zion, the glorification of the believer is something God accomplishes. We don't do it. God does it. We're, we're going to, um, maybe muddle's not a great word, but we're going to muddle our way through life, doing the best we can, being sanctified, God growing us up, changing us from the inside out. But the Bible says, now we see through a glass dimly, then we will see face to face. Now we know uh, darkly, then we will know as we're known. So we, there will be a time when we will have that, that victory, the full victory that we see on the horizon today. So the Lord's saying, for Zion's sake, and whenever he talks about Zion, and he's often going to associate Zion to Jerusalem. And what we, what I think we want to do is I don't think we want to be uh, so nationalistically focused. I, I'm not saying that God doesn't have a plan for Israel. But we don't want to be so nationalistically focused that we forget that God also uses those same terms for the new Jerusalem. For new heaven, new earth. For the, the culmination of the glory of God's people. So when we look at in terms of how do we see this in a timeline in in the uh, the end of days, I in my opinion this is it. This is the end. There there will be uh, the glory of God's people. It's gonna they're gonna shine. They're, they're, the Lord's gonna be with them. We'll see these things as He lays out. He says the righteousness and salvation will be like a burning torch. That's that's gonna be the light. That's that's what we're reflecting of Him. If you remember. Uh, Jesus declared that he is the light. The book of Revelation tells us that in the new heaven and new earth there will be no sun. Because the Lord will be the light. And so the idea of of that, the the righteousness, which where, where did that come from? That's not something I made. It's not something I created. It's something that I was gifted. Right? God, It's God's righteousness given to me. Because I was willing to be a man who would fall on his knees before the Lord, beat his breast, and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, right? And the Lord said, that man left justified. That man left declared righteous. So it's, it's those who humble themselves before the Lord that are lifted up, right? And so this righteousness and salvation becomes the light. And that light is what draws the nations. And the word for nations, goyim, it's Gentiles, it's the rest of the world, it's all the people seeing the light of God's redeemed, seeing the beauty of God's redeemed. And all the kings, <clears throat> the big kings, the good kings, it's not like for them in their day, you know, Israel's a little place. They're not famous. No, nobody somewhere is studying all the kings of Israel. No, we study the, the, the kings of Rome or Greece or, or Egypt or, right? We look, we see all those things, but nobody's really focused in on, on the king. But the Lord's saying all those kings, all those bigwigs, all those famous people, they're going to see your glory. All people will see the glory of the redeemed. The, those whom the Lord has saved. And then I love this because he says, not only will the kings see your glory, but you will be called by a new name. Now that ought to ring a bell, right? You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You will be called a new name that you don't know, that God knows. And when the Bible talks about you'll be given a new name, what, what is he saying? He's saying, listen, there's going to be 
And such a change of condition and a change of character in your life that you're going to need a new name. Your, your name's not going to work anymore. Because you have been so transformed, so changed, that, that there's going to be a new name. Revelation 2.17, when we are reading the seven letters to the seven churches, it says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, the overcomer, right? The one who by faith uh, believes. I will give <clears throat> some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What's he talking about? You're going to be so changed, so transformed, God's going to give you a new name. God's, that's the point that he's laying out. Isaiah 56, 5, the Lord says, Look, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. So God's saying, for his redeemed, for the saved, which will incorporate the nation of Israel and the church. The nation of Israel is called the Ecclesia in the Old Testament. The, the, the book uh, or the Septuagint uses the word Ecclesia, which is the same word for church in the New Testament. The point being, these, these groups become the redeemed of the Lord. Right? How is it that that uh, the Israel gets saved just by being born a Jew? That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible te doesn't teach you you are born into salvation. The Bible teaches that Israel are those who follow the example of Abraham. What was his example? Abraham did what? Believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Abraham, by faith, becomes a child of God. How is it that Israel is saved, they by faith become children of God. How is it that people in the church are saved? By faith they become children of God. You get, it's a, <clears throat> the same event, although in the, the, the difference is in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is looking forward to a Messiah, and in the New Testament we're looking back to one. Right? But both ways, you're looking forward to the one who is going to redeem. The, the nation of Israel is looking forward to their Redeemer. The church is looking backward to their Redeemer. But we're looking to the same Redeemer. We're looking to the one, the only one who can save. <clears throat> so he's laying this out. What is this characteristic of Zion? Zion's going to be called by a new name, and it's a work that God does. God accomplishes that work. And verse 3, Zion's going to be crowned with glory. He says in verse 3, You shall be the crown of beauty, in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Now, it's interesting because <clears throat> the Samaritans, <clears throat> you guys have heard, you know, before that there's this animosity between, between the Jew and the Samaritan. And where that starts <clears throat> is about, roughly about Isaiah's time, probably within, uh, Isaiah is a hundred years of the exile of the of the southern kingdom, so he sees the exile of the north. So <clears throat> the nation of Israel has a civil war and they divide, and the north basically become the wicked; they don't want to follow the Lord, and the south basically becomes those who want to follow the Lord. That's the division: ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, but you have a mixture of all tribes in both places, 
right? If you wanted to follow the Lord and you lived in the north, you would move south, right? If you lived in the south and you want to get away from all these religious crazy people, you're moving to the north. <clears throat> so in the north you have basically the wicked. They are conquered by Assyria. Assyria conquers them. And when Assyria conquers them, they leave only the poor behind and a mixture of all the poor from all the other nations that they conquered. And those people intermarry and are kind of ostracized by, by the other Jews. They become the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, the Jews won't let them come to the temple. So they decide, well, we'll make our own temple. So they made their own temple. You can still, in Israel today, see sacrifices because on Mount Gerizim, where the, where the temple for the Samaritans is, they still do sacrifice. That temple still stands. They made their own scriptures. So they kind of took the, the first five books of the, Pente- the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they changed some things and made it their own. So they built basically a man-made religion to try to copy the religion of the southern kingdom. And so they still today are in that pursuit. But that pursuit is not a pursuit in reliance on God. It's a reliance on man. It's a self-made man's religion. I don't want to do it God's way. I I, I kind of mixed and mingled some things. And so the Lord is saying, look... You will become the crown of beauty. What, what the world, what the Samaritans try to do for themselves that they can never be, God does for his people. It's not that we or that they are some way better. The only thing that separates the Samaritans from the, from the, the, the saved, those who by faith come to the Lord, is their willingness to humble themselves and say, I need you, Lord. They, instead, they said, I can make my own God. You kind of get what I'm saying? And that's what became the division between the Samaritans and, and, uh, and, and the, the Jews. And so the Lord is laying out, look, Zion, the redeemed, the ones who I have saved, they're going to become the crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. They don't become the crown of beauty because of self-effort. You get what I'm saying? And I, and if you got time, read Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16 talks about the nation of Israel. And God likens the nation of Israel to a baby who was thrown away in a field. Still laying in its afterbirth. And God says, nobody wanted you. But I want you. Nobody cared about you, but I care about you. And so the Lord says, I'm the one who is making you Beautiful. Now he says, and part of the process of Ezekiel 16 is God says he's pouring out and he's giving, but she's rejecting him. This child who grows decides she wants to go back to the ones who threw her away. But the Lord in Ezekiel 16, his point is, I'm always here to redeem. You come to me and I'll redeem you. The story of Hosea, the story of the prophets. There's this concept throughout scripture that... That if you will be real before the Lord and not pretend into some type of self-righteousness, God says, then there's nothing he can't forgive. I'm reminded of my, 
when my kids were growing up and times where I would sit down with my kids and I have them dead to rights. I know exactly what they did. I know when they snuck out. I know who they were with. I got the phone call from the cops who busted the party. I, I own you. I know you think you got back in the house and snuck in and I don't know anything. And I sat down with my son and I said, I'm, I told him ahead of time. I know everything. I'm, I'm telling you. You have a choice to believe me or think dad's trying to snow me. I said, but you have one chance to tell me the truth. If you tell me the truth, then things will be easier. If you lie to me, things will be harder. And he looked right at me and lied. And then I said, everything he did. And everything I'd say, his head would get a little lower. Oh, dad does know. He knows it all. But I think the Lord has those same things. He wants us to have that time where we're just honest. Yes, I'm I'm a sinner. I mess it up, God. And not that I'm trying to excuse my sin so I can continue to wallow in it, but that I'm being honest with him, that I need you and and I recognize my weakness. I need you. And so it's a work that God does. It's something that God is accomplishing in and through them. And he will make us beautiful. Not because we become beautiful all by ourselves. But because we entrust ourselves to him. And he will do that work. That's what he does in, in Ezekiel 16. If you have time, read the chapter. It's a long chapter, but it's a good one. So <clears throat> if you get a chance. The, the, the third thing that we see is that we will be changed. We talked already about the transformation in a new name. But this Zion, the people, the redeemed, they are going to be changed from what they were to what we are. Look what he says. You shall no more be termed forsaken. You're not forsaken anymore. And the land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. God God is saying, I want want you to know that you are my delight. And then we have some issues with uh, translation. And I don't know what uh, um, King James, I didn't look up, but it says in your land will be called married. Or maybe it says Beulah. Beulah is the word. Um, And the idea of Beulah is, is confusing. So is this... Is it, is it the land that was desolate will be married? Um, so, so the idea of being changed is that we're going to move from forsaken. We were once forsaken, but now we've become the delight, the, the apple of God's eye, sort of. You guys with me? So we're moving from forsaken to delight. Isaiah 61.3 says, this is what he's going to do. This is kind of similar, right? To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes. Remember? We talked about it last week. The oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that God's going to translate us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's, a, that's what God does. That's what God does when we humble ourselves before him. In Isaiah 61.7, it says, Instead of shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they will rejoice. Uh, therefore, their land, they will possess a double portion and they will have everlasting joy. So this is part of it, right? <clears throat> so the idea that we're moving from forsaken to delight. 
And then I think the best way to define Beulah, rather than trying to... You'll see why it gets confusing in in verse 5. But I think the best way to understand it is you will belong to or be dwelt in for, for Beulah. So the idea is you were desolate, but you'll be dwelt in. The people will, will find a home in you. In fact, if you look at verse 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so your, son, your sons shall marry you. Oh, that's a little confusing, right? What? What does that mean? Well, it's the same word. And, and so we can, we can say, well, your sons will marry you, or we can understand your sons will dwell in you. That your, that the family is going to be united. The idea, the worst thing that a woman could experience in the ancient world was desolation. You have nobody. No husband, no children, you have nothing. Yeah, so that's the idea of desolation. So then when we look at this, when he says, you're gonna, instead of being desolate, Rather than the idea, the word meaning your sons will marry you, the idea is your sons will be with you, they'll dwell with you, you're going to be together. So rather than desolate, now you're going to have family around you. Rather than being forsaken, you're thinking that I don't want you, God says my delight's going to be in you. Rather than being desolate, you're going to be dwelt in, you're going to belong to, you're going to be a part of the, the land. The land will be a part of you and you will be a part of it. And the idea is that like a bridegroom rejoices over the bride. One of my favorite things to do at weddings is to watch the groom when he sees the bride walk down the aisle, right? That's, that's a pretty awesome time. And, and, um, I can always tell, you know, just how special it is by, by what happens. The wedding we were just at last week, um, uh, Danny, um, married Bella. And uh, so there, as she's walking down the aisle, he's weeping. And it was awesome because you, you're like, in that moment, you're like, yeah, I don't, I'm not, I don't have any worries about Danny. Danny is in love with the girl, right? And so, and that's the language that he's using here. That, that like a bridegroom sees the bride in verse 5, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so will God rejoice over you. So it's like on that day when the redeemed, when Zion is becoming everything that it's intended to be, the place where all of God's people dwell with the Lord and he's with them, he's saying when you come walking down, it's going to be like a bridegroom seeing the bride. And the bridegroom's God with a tear in his eyes, he sees the bride enter in. And that's the same kind of language we have in Revelation, right? Revelation 19, verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So here's the brides all decked out. And it was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. So God is giving her the clothes, just like Ezekiel 16 talks about. God is, is pouring out His blessing and His covering. Uh, and it says, And the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When you're at the place when God sees His bride coming down the aisle. Right? 
So you have this picture in the New Testament of Jesus and the Bride of Christ, the church. And you have the same picture in the Old Testament, only it's God the Father, the Bride of Israel. But the result is the same. God rejoicing over seeing the redeemed, over seeing them together with Him. We've, it's finally come. Sometimes, you know, when we're, when we're young, we are, maybe we think about what's it going to be like when we are married and we have a family and all these things happen. We have all these ideas and, and, uh, and maybe it seems like it takes a long time for that to happen. And, and eventually it does happen for us and, and maybe it's good and maybe it wasn't. But on that day, God's been waiting a long time. And his bride will be perfect, he said, because I'm going to make you perfect. She's going to be beautiful because the Lord says, I'm going to make you beautiful. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to put all the pieces together. All I need is the willing participant, right? The one who is willing to humble themselves and say, Lord, I'm yours. You make me. You mold me. You do your work. And so she's characterized as a bride. So we, we, we see these ideas, right, over Zion. And then the next thing we see is that she becomes the praise of the earth. So all the earth praising. Look at verse 6. It says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. And all the day and all the night they will never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise on the earth. So the watchmen are just constantly sounding the trumpets. Looking both ways for, for God ultimately to accomplish his promise. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, if I've begun a good work in you, I will what? I'm going to finish it. So in the same way, when, when the nation of Israel is looking at the promises of God, they're looking for the promise of God to finish it. Finish the redemption. Accomplish your purpose. So as we're in the Old Testament looking forward to the coming of Messiah, death, burial, and resurrection in Jesus Christ, this is the language that was used. And when we come to the New Testament, the language is looking back to the sacrifice of Jesus. It's the same language. It's the same picture. You guys, you guys get what I'm saying? It's the same idea that we want to hold on to. Lord is doing the work. They're never going to be silent until He establishes it all. There will be a day when it all is put right. And the important thing to understand is, it is the work of the Lord. Verse 8, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, nor will foreigners drink your wine for which you have labored. In the Old Testament, God gave a promise. If you follow me, here's the blessings that you have. If you follow me, the blessing will be your enemies won't eat your stuff. If you don't follow me, here's the curse. Your enemies will eat your stuff. And what happened? Well, the people struggled to follow him. And so what happened? The enemies ate their stuff. But the Lord is saying one day, there will be a day when you're never going to have to worry about enemies eating your stuff again. Your, your labor, the things you've done, the things that God has blessed or given, they will be yours to enjoy. And you won't have to worry about those things coming. It's not, it's not the idea that, look, um, um, you know, I, I need to be good because if I'm not good, then the enemy will come. Because when we come to the time of the redeemed, the time of Zion, there are no wicked. The wicked are gone. 
There is the righteous. There are the, what, what I would term our older brothers, which I would say are the angelic beings, and their abode is heavenly, right? And then there are the earthly beings. That's us. And our abode is earthly. And then between both, heaven and earth, what do we have? A new Jerusalem, where they all meet. Where we will do whatever the things God has planned for all eternity to do. I have no idea what those will be. I don't know. But I know God made the earth for the, for the earthly, and He made the heaven for the heavenly. And each, He wants to live together. I know that because when I read Genesis 1-1 and we go to the Garden of Eden, they were all there. Right? You have Adam walking in the cool of the evening with the Lord, and you have the nefesh, the shining one, what we call the serpent. The shining one who came to them to deceive them. Right? You have representation of all three there in Eden. All there. And, and one day... God's going to redeem it all. Fallen angels will be dealt with. Fallen man will be dealt with. And what will be left will be the elect angels, the elect men, and God's perfect reign. And that's Zion, New Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the the place that we've all seen Scripture Uh, building to, like the crescendo, right? The day when these things are going to take place, when these things will happen. You don't have to worry about enemies coming. And you will see the worship of the people. But but those who garner it will eat it and praise the Lord. Those who gather it will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Oh, the Bible talks about eating and drinking still. The Bible talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Bible talks about feasts. The Bible talks about celebration. All of those things mean that there's going to be a lot of things like we have still today, but they're just going to be perfect, not screwed up by our weirdness. We got a lot of weirdness. We got a lot of baggage we bring, no? Yeah, for sure, man. We bring it, and so the Lord is saying, look, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of all of that. So you're going to have, you know, the perfect response to God's blessing. A lot of God's blessing I experience every day that I don't thank Him for. So I wake up in the morning and sometimes you go out and you think, man, what a beautiful day. And, and maybe we think about thanking the Lord for it and maybe we don't. But then I'm not going to have that struggle with my selfishness and my focus on me. I'm going to be thinking about all the things I want to praise God for. And I will respond properly. That's what he's saying. You're going you're gonna to gather the blessings that God's given and you're going to thank Him. And you're going to gather up the fruit of your labor and you're going to thank God. So there's, there's a, a, a purpose, I guess my point. There's a purpose to our existence. It's not just sitting around on clouds playing harps and singing. Right? That we were made to inhabit a world and to accomplish God's purpose... In, in subduing that, that land, right? Isn't that what God told Adam? And, and that is not done. Now, now the earth is stained, it's broken, it's, it's, it's cursed. And Jesus Christ died so that that curse could be lifted. And heaven is the same way. Did angels fall? Yes, angels fell. 
They rebel? Yes, angels rebelled. So there's, there's got to be a purging of heaven and a purging of earth. And the Bible calls it what? New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. There's going to be a, a purpose. It's not going to be, you know, the pictures that we sometimes get of heaven. There will be a purpose. And the purpose will perfectly satisfy God's creation. You're not going to be left like we are today where we go, man, I don't know if I'm really fulfilling my purpose, if I'm being who I'm supposed to be. In, in heaven, you're, you're not going to have that problem. In heaven, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, fulfilling God's purpose. You have a new name because you've been changed. All that stuff's been gone. There will be a day, and it's a day worth looking forward to. And that's what he's declaring. He's saying, man, this is Zion. This is the Zion that I'm talking about. And he's just, he says, you're, gonna, you're not going to get lost. Like, now on earth, do you ever feel lost? Sometimes I'm like, I don't know what to do. I feel like, you know, other forces are conspiring against me. You know, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, that's, sometimes that's how we feel. But look what he says. He says in verse 10, he says, So go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear the stones. Lift up a signal or a banner over the people. He's, he's saying this. Sometimes we don't know where to go. But in the Old Testament, God talks through the prophets about establishing a highway that's elevated. So wherever you are, you can see it. Oh, there it is. That's where we're trying to get to. It's not that, oh, I can't find my way to the road. or I don't know where to go. Or it's not clearly marked. No, he's saying, man, it's going to be built up the way, the path, the, the place that you're supposed to walk, the things that you're supposed to do. There will be a day. And they're going to be clear. And you're going to walk through the gate. And the Bible tells us, what's a gate made of? Each gate is made of one pearl, right? So that's why they call them the pearly gates. But the point of the, of the, is that the gates open. And the way is known. And it's not so much, when we get to heaven, is there really going to be a pearly gate? It doesn't matter. When we get to heaven, the point is, the gates open. The road will be known. You'll know where to walk. Where now, sometimes I don't know what to do. Sometimes I'm confused. And I live in a constant dependence on the Lord. The difference is, then, now I don't see Him. Then I will. He will always be with us. We, we'll always have His presence with us in that place. And we will have the, a banner covering us. The Bible tells us, what's the banner? His banner over me is love. His banner. That's the banner over which that he's placing over his people. So he says, make the highway tall and open the gate so that people know where to go and then cover them with my banner, my signal, my, my, the, the flag that marks them. Well, what is that? Beloved. Yeah. You are my beloved. My kids, my people, my Zion. And that's the thing that, that the Lord is longing uh longing for and each one of these this is accomplished by the coming of messiah so again isaiah is looking forward we're looking back but look what he says <clears throat> behold the lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth say to the daughter of zion behold your salvation comes for them their salvation was coming it was written about in isaiah 53 how is it for you your salvation has come now is the time. Today is the day. Right? 
Salvation is always present tense. It's always now. It's always the, the thing that he has provided. So he's saying, your salvation comes, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense comes before him. So it's to the end of the earth, God's provision to the end of the earth, and the expectancy is salvation comes. And so for the, the, the believing, the faithful Israel, they're looking forward to the coming of Messiah and the deliverance of salvation. The church is looking back toward the coming of Messiah and the provision of salvation. And each, each accomplished the same thing by faith. By faith. Hoping in Him. And then finally we see the comfort of the Lord. And they will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. So the Lord is saying, keep in mind when He's talking to at least this is how this is how I I think it's clearest. It's that as he's talking about Zion, he's talking about the redeemed, and he's saying, "I sought you out." Right? What did Jesus say? There's a, sh- a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and he lost one. What did he do? He sought it out. Right? He went and found the lost one and he brought it back. So he's saying, "I want you to know you're the sought out ones." And you're not forsaken. And so when we, in this world, feeling lost and alone and, and all the different things that we may experience here, he's saying, look, this is what I want you to know. You're not forsaken. You're sought out. You are, you are ones I want to touch. I want to, I want to uh, save. I want to perfect. I want to beautify. So the end result of our salvation is uh, a work of redemption and holiness and hinges on a relationship with Him. He's saying, look, the redeemed of the Lord, this is who you are. You are sought out, a city not forsaken. Now, to get to that place, to get to that point, to enter into that day when the city is placed on a hill and the light shines... There's one more dark day that comes, right? The Bible calls it the day of the Lord. Because before that day is judgment. The day of judgment. And in Isaiah 63, he's going to describe that. He describes this as the return. We have the coming of Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament as he comes on a donkey in peace He is meek and gentle. And then we have Messiah described as the lion and the conquering king. Now those two comings are different. Right? One is to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord's favor. Now's the time of salvation. You with me? The second will be to proclaim the day of God's vengeance. You, every father at some point, every parent at some point has a line in the sand that says, this far, no further. Cross the line, discipline comes. And so does God. He, so does God. There will be a day when his creation will answer to him. You're free to make whatever choices you want, but... 
But freedom doesn't mean you're free from consequences of those choices. I can go out the door today and choose to do anything I want. I can jump on my motorcycle and go 100 miles an hour home, and Rusty can pull me over and take me to jail. Was I free? Now, should I be mad at Rusty? Rusty, what a dirtbag, man. What's going on? You, I, 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 you, you can't just take me to jail. Yeah, you can. You were free to do whatever you wanted to do. Right? But there's also judgment day. You pay for what you do. Right? That's not uncommon. But for some reason, our world today has a hard time wrapping their mind around that idea. That idea that, you know what? There, there will be a judgment. I can, I am free to reject God, but I will one day stand before the God I rejected to give account. To give an account for the fact that I chose to reject you. And now you can't say, well, if God was really love, he wouldn't have that. What are you talking about? Every, everything on earth is like that. There's not something that's not like that. I can't say, oh, I, I took a job at Home Depot and I decided my first day of work to steal everything. Well, I was free to make that choice, but I, I shouldn't be judged for it. On what earth does that ever happen? That's not how we live, right? Nobody lives like that. This is for crazy people to talk, you know, out of both sides of their mouth. Oh, God should be loving and there should be no judgment. But there's nothing on earth that speaks to that. Even in the wild kingdom, right? Animals are free. Do whatever you want. But if you're a monkey and you decide to, to dance on a crocodile's head, there's a chance. You're not going to make it through the next day. Right? So, the same way. So let's look. Just the first six verses of, of Isaiah 63. It's something I refer to often. This is what the second coming, which will establish the kingdom and the coming of Zion... Uh, begins with. This is what, what starts that. Uh, Revelation 19 is dealing with Isaiah 63. It says, Who is this who comes from Edom in, in crimsoned garments from Basra? Basra is the capital of Edom. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Now the response. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. So this is the Lord. And to be honest, this is Jesus Christ. This is his return. So he's saying, who is this who comes from Edom? Basra, the capital of Edom, is on one end of an interesting valley. The valley is called the Jezreel Valley. You may know the Jezreel Valley by another name. There's a mount in the Jezreel Valley that a lot of people talk about. Har Megiddo. The Mount of Megiddo. Or... Armageddon. So the Jezreel Valley is 180 miles long. It's uh, it's been called by you know most. It's there've been so many battles fought there: World War One, World War Two. Previous to that, in the ancient world, Napoleon fought there. I mean, Napoleon called it the perfect battlefield. There's no end to amount amount of blood that had been shed in that valley. And so here he says. Who is this coming to this valley? And you have the response. Speaking in righteousness, uh, it's the Lord. Mighty to save, right? Why is your apparel red and your garments like those who tread the winepress? In verse 3, he says, I have trodden the winepress alone. From the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments. 
and stained all my apparel. Why? Why would God do such a thing? Verse 4. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Remember what Jesus came to proclaim. I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. Now, he doesn't proclaim the day of vengeance because he came to save. But when that period is over, when that time comes to an end, when the period of God's grace reaches its, its zenith, the point where God says, okay, that's it. Then the next day is the day of his wrath. The reason why God can make a promise to Zion that there will be no wicked is because God's going to abolish all the wicked. That they, the wicked end. And the way God describes the ending of the wicked, now whether it, it looks like this, we get the description, right? Somehow they're gone. Uh, whether it actually looks like God trampling the grapes of wrath, but we understand the picture, right? We get the idea. So he's going to uh, wipe them out. I looked and there was no one to help. The Lord says, I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So he said, I brought salvation. We can't deliver ourselves from the wicked any more than I can deliver myself from my own wickedness. I cannot do it. I will never win that battle. I will never have the willpower to be a different me unless I surrender to Christ and I allow Him to do the work in and through me. And then it's His arm that saves. It's He that transforms me. It's He that changes my name. And that's available to everyone. Nobody has to reject that. But you are, of course, free to do so. But you're also free of the consequence, right? I can choose, to, but you're, God's telling you ahead of time. You can choose anything you want. You can live any way you want, do anything you want. You are a free moral being. But that doesn't mean you're free of your accountability. You are responsible for your choices, just like I am. And that's how we really live. That's how life really works. Whether you want it to be that way or not is irrelevant. That's how life works. We have responsibility for what we do. So the Lord says, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So the point is that God is abolishing the wicked. Now... <clears throat> This is described multiple places in Scripture. In Lamentations 1.15. Lamentations is <clears throat> written by Jeremiah as he watches God's judgment come on the southern kingdom. Remember I told you the northern kingdom got conquered by, by uh, Assyria. And the, the southern kingdom gets conquered by Babylon. And when they get conquered by Babylon, um, Jeremiah, who has spent his entire life begging the people to stop, to turn to repent, to live. You don't have to die. You don't have to go through these hard things. All you have to do is, is uh, turn to the Lord and He will save. He will abundantly pardon. He will forgive. Just turn to Him. Just turn to Him. Just turn to Him. Nobody would ever listen. So Jeremiah, watching the destruction, he, he, he writes a poem. It's, it's called the, the Book of Lamentations. It says, The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst, he summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden 
as in a wine press, the virgin daughter of Judah. Now, the point isn't that it's a physical trampling of God stomping on people, but the idea is judgment day came. Payday. You, you, we spend our whole lives writing checks. One day, they, the checks got to go to the bank, right? I, I hope those checks are written on the first bank of Jesus Christ, because otherwise you don't have the money to pay. Payday someday. So this is how it's described in Lamentations. Revelation 14 describes it like this. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth, threw it into a winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, 1,600 stadia. That's 180 miles. The exact length of the Jezreel Valley. Now, whether it means the blood flowed like a river for the horse's bridle or the blood splashed, doesn't make any difference. The end result's the same, right? Bad day? Yeah? Now, the point is, nobody has to be there. Because God has sent the invitation for everyone to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? Remember where God sees the bride with a tear in his eyes and he makes her beautiful and he provides for her this beautiful city? Don't lose sight of the beautiful city that God has promised to provide for those who are willing, right? You don't have to be in the vat of grapes that get trampled. But you can choose it. Just like I sat in front of my son knowing he was going to lie to me. I know he's going to lie. I hope he's not going to lie, but I know he's going to lie. God sits in front of us and says, I hope you're going to choose life. Because I've set before you both. And I'm telling you ahead of time where each road goes. So the only person responsible is that it's not God and his hatred who's being unjust to you. You pick the road. He told you that road leads to here. You don't get there and then complain, why did this road lead me to here? I told you that's where it went. You're the one who walked it. In Revelation 19.15 it says, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So the point of it all is that on Judgment Day, God will destroy the wicked. And then the wicked are gone. And they will be, the Bible will describe it like, outside the city are dogs and the immoral, and, and people always go, oh, so there will be bad people outside the city. No. Everything is the city. The point is, they're not there. They're gone. They're, they're judged, right? You want to read about it. It's Revelation 20. They're cast into the lake of fire where the, the beast and the false prophet and the devil and his angels are. So that's, that's the abode. That's where that road of rebellion leads. And that's, that's where they will find themselves. This is what Jesus said in Isaiah 61 verse 2. He said, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stopped. Now Isaiah 61 verse 2 goes on to say, And the day of vengeance. He will proclaim that day too. He will come and announce that day. He will land in Basra, walk through the Jezreel Valley, 
and it will be the end of the wicked. Judgment day. That, that day will come. But so far, we still find ourselves in the year of the Lord's favor, which means there's time to repent. To be like that guy that we, that we esteem who fell on his knees before Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus readily forgave and restored and justified. Seems so easy. But the rebellion of man's heart just wants to kick against the goads, doesn't it? In Jeremiah 46.10 it says, That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts. A day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The sword will devour and be satisfied and drink and get its fill of blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. There will be a day. And just like the day of Zion will be the day of vengeance. As sure as the day of Zion's glory will be, so will be the day of vengeance. So in the same way, God is laying before us life, death. And then he says, you're free. This road leads to life, that one doesn't. Which one will you walk? Behold, now is the time. Today is the day. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We can come together. We can study your word, Lord. I pray that, uh, God, it might uh, ignite a curiosity in us to know and understand your word and to be challenged, Lord, that, that you know, for a long time you have been calling men everywhere to repent and believe. And, Lord, in that place where we come to that, where we are able to acknowledge that, Lord, you are able to do Abundantly above all we can ask or imagine according to the power that works in you. Lord, you are able to transform us, to change us. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So that you are able to deliver us from the uttermost. So Lord, we pray, God, that you we, we would come to that place in faith where we trust you. Where we're able to say, I need you, God, and I need you to, to move and work in my life to accomplish your perfect plan and design. And then as I trust in you, Lord, then help me be patient as you work at your pace, not mine. I would love to be delivered overnight. Sometimes you deliver over years. And because I have to stay dependent on you. And the point of the whole exercise is to learn to be dependent on God. What happened in the garden so long ago when man rebelled against God was man declared independence. Lord, I don't need you. I got this myself. And so far we've done a bang up job. So when we come to that day of salvation, it's declaring our dependence. I need you today. I need you tomorrow. I'm going to need you the next day. I'm going to need you every step of the way. And whatever you allow in my life, whatever struggles you allow me to endure, you will give me the strength to overcome. Because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. So Lord, we look to you, our deliverer, our redeemer, and we, we look expectantly at a day when wickedness is gone 
and the righteous dwell together in unity. Lord, we look forward to the day when you will be our light and we'll know where to walk and what to do and how it all is supposed to work out. Look forward to the day when you redeem all things. But we also know that part of the process of redeeming all things is the day of judgment. So God, I pray that you make us diligent. Because now's the time, today's the day. May we be willing to share the truth with anybody who will listen. It's not our job to save, it's just our job to tell. To call all men everywhere. Repent, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we put our eyes toward you. Help us as we walk with you, Lord, and be glorified in and through it all. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.